Hello, and welcome back to Reformed. Today, we're going to be examining two different social theories and looking at how they can help us understand mass incarceration. First, we're going to discuss the idea of a panopticon. The panopticon is a type of prison, first imagined by Jeremy Bentham, but made famous by Michel Foucault, that informs how many people view the prison system today. Then, we're going to look at the idea of a moral panic. A moral panic is a situation where the general public becomes alarmed in response to a perceived problem that threatens society's moral standards. Moral panics are a useful way to understand how effective tough-on-crime political rhetoric has been in the United States. Let's start with Foucault and the history of modern prisons. In his classic book, Discipline and Punish, Michel Foucault looked at the transformation of criminal justice from the Enlightenment to modern day. Foucault says that before the 19th century, Western nations exacted punishment on the body of the convicted. Punishment was a spectacle. Public executions were commonplace. Individuals could lose body parts or be tortured for slights against the state. In other words, the ruling individual or the state, would take physical payment in response to lawbreaking. In contrast, Foucault says that today's prison system, commonly framed as one with, quote, less cruelty, less pain, more kindness, more respect, more humanity, has been, quote, accompanied by a displacement in the very object of the punitive operation. To put it more simply, punishment shifted. It's no longer focused on physically extracting pain from a person's body, but instead, punishment is enacted over a period of time and focused on altering an individual's behavior. To better understand what Foucault is describing, we have to go back to the origins of American prisons. Like in Europe, early American settlers relied on laws and punishments based in corporal punishment. Banishment, public humiliation, stockades, even public whipping were commonplace in the early U.S. These punishments were supposed to deter other citizens from breaking the law because they created a public spectacle, just like Foucault describes. This type of punishment, while it might seem harsh to modern listeners, was central in American life until about the end of the 18th century. But religious reformers in the U.S. thought that corporal punishment was overly cruel and degrading for the individual. The Quaker Society of Friends, specifically, motivated by physical punishments they endured when they were being punished for heresy as a religious minority, strongly opposed this type of punishment. When the Quakers became the politically dominant group in Pennsylvania, they leveraged their newfound political capital to advocate for a different type of incarceration. The first modern incarceration facility in the U.S., as we think of them today, was the Walnut Street Jail in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. The jail, founded in 1770, became an experimental ground for a new type of punishment. In 1790, administrators converted part of the jail into a long-stay wing for prisoners. That part of the facility looked a lot like modern jails and prisons. Contractors designed cells for separate and solitary confinement, focusing on individual isolation. 
This type of prison reflected a widespread belief on the part of 18th and 19th century prison reformers. The belief that crime occurred because of an individual's defectiveness, particularly the idea that crime was, quote, a disease of the mind. These reformers thought that prisoners, isolated and given time to reflect, would regret their actions and reform their own behavior. But, as with later incarceration facilities, Philadelphia's jails were very crowded in the late 1700s. The government and prison reformers wanted to create a new space where people could be incarcerated under this supposedly more humane, reform-oriented model. This prison, called Eastern State Penitentiary, was created by the Quakers and the most radical embodiment of their religious, rehabilitative ideal. Every person in Eastern State lived in near isolation. Their cells were entirely separate from one another, and they were forced to live in near total silence. Toilets and private baths within each cell meant that everyone within Eastern State could live in almost complete isolation. John Haviland, the prison architect, described the cells as a, quote, forced monastery. Religion underpinned life at Eastern State. People incarcerated at the prison received Bibles to read during their stay and were encouraged to undertake a life of religious contemplation, the kind of life that contemporary Quakers believed would lead each prisoner to spiritual enlightenment and moral virtue. To encourage separation from worldly pursuits, prisoners were not allowed to write letters to their friends or family members. They could not receive visits, and even newspapers were forbidden within the walls of the prison. People within Eastern State were allowed to spin wool and make shoes within their cells, perhaps reflecting the Protestant work ethic, which upheld the transformative power of labor and industry on the individual. This type of labor occurred at other early penitentiaries in New England and the Northeast, including New York's famous Auburn State Prison, where incarcerated people worked silently in massive communal rooms. Although Eastern State Penitentiary was just one prison, its construction marked the beginning of a new era in American incarceration. Whereas earlier incarceration focused on physically punishing the individual, the new form of imprisonment worked by physically separating a person from society, by taking a person away from their family, friends, and community, and strictly controlling their contact with the outside world, an individual was supposed to have time and space to reflect on their wrongdoing and eventually rejoin the community, humbled by the experience and having, quote, learned their lesson. Saquon R. Merritt, a justice reform advocate, entrepreneur, businessman, and formerly incarcerated person, told me about his experiences of incarceration under this new model of imprisonment. Um, actually, the, well, one of the... MCIJ was kind of, I guess it, it was set up like a, it, I guess they tried to give it um, a army, army like an army base setting. Mm-hmm. So um, it was real, you know, direct and control. Like if you, if you know, the, the building was actually constructed. So your path of movement was like to and from. Mm-hmm. And I didn't realize that until I started, you know, looking at different like architecture. I'm like, mm-hmm. wow, this is just. You know, so uh, people formerly incarcerated could go from one place A to B and not really be spread it out. Um, okay. That's kind of how the outer structure was. The inside, what do we have here? It's probably like this. Yeah. And don't, <laughs> those that are listening, please don't get it misconstrued. This is not a big studio. <laughs> this is a small, yeah, this is a small space. Maybe, what, a, a, probably about this. 
What yeah. is it? Six by six nine, maybe? Yeah. Right. Yeah, six by nine space. Um, and that's pretty much how uh, the cells were. Yeah. And uh, in Jessa, you know, mm-hmm. they would be six by nine. Uh, but you got to remember, you got two bunk beds. Mm-hmm. You got a toilet. So it's like it's like kind of living in a bathroom for real. So most of, most of the spaces were pretty much the size of your you know size of your bathroom. Michel Foucault, writing in France in the 1970s, looked at this new model of punishment and provided a framework for understanding it. He argued that contemporary prisons focused on creating docile bodies, people that the state could control and exploit in new economic, political, and military systems. In order to control an individual, the state enforced discipline on a variety of grounds. States had to enclose space marking specific places that an individual could occupy at specific times, enforcing a school or monastery-like schedule, and preventing wandering looters. Controlling what space people could occupy at any given time was a way that the state could gain power. Similarly, the state exerted power by controlling an individual's timetable. Through regimented work schedules and establishing cyclical, rhythmic patterns of daily life, again, similar to monasteries and schools, the state could more easily control individual behavior in the industrial world. Foucault looked to the modern prison as a prime example of state control over the individual. Specifically, he examined a prison designed by Jeremy Bentham, a British philosopher. This hypothetical prison, known as the Panopticon, took the Quaker concept to the extreme. The cells were built in a large circle around a central watchtower. They were designed in such a way that a guard in the central tower could see into each of the rooms, but none of the people held in the cells could see the guard. For an image of the Panopticon, see this episode's show notes. Every person within one of the cells would never know whether or not they were being watched by the guard. That uncertainty was exactly what made the hypothetical Panopticon so effective. Foucault said that, Since there was always the possibility that an individual was being watched, they would always modulate their own behavior as if the guard were watching. The incarcerated person, isolated and always under the watchful eye of the panopticon, would develop the habits and behavior desired by the prison and by society. Foucault argues that society functions like a great panoptic prison. We all modulate our behavior to be socially normal and acceptable because there's always the chance that someone might be watching and judging what we do. Whether or not you agree with Foucault's points about panopticons and modern society, the prison that he describes in Discipline and Punish is the modern penitentiary taken to the extreme. The state holds individuals in isolation from society with the expectation that they will reflect on their actions and reform themselves. But it's been clear since the start that serious problems exist with this model of punishment. At the beginning of modern imprisonment, European scholars and authors came to America to tour its new system of incarceration. For instance, famous writer Charles Dickens came to visit Eastern State Penitentiary in the 1930s. Here's what he said about the prison. 
In its intention, I am well convinced that it is kind, humane, and meant for reformation. But I am persuaded that those who devise this system of prison discipline and those benevolent gentlemen who carry it into execution do not know what it is they are doing. I believe that very few men are capable of estimating the immense amount of torture and agony which this dreadful punishment, prolonged for years, inflicts upon the sufferers. Solitary confinement and the religious model don't provide an individual with the tools that they need for long-term well-being and success. The panopticon, as Foucault describes it, and prisons that operate on the basis of isolation don't help rehabilitation. They actively harm it. Solitary confinement, especially over long periods of time, can seriously damage a person's health. Extended periods in isolation can lead to hallucinations, emotional instability, and difficulty interacting with others once returning from solitary confinement. The UN even considers America's solitary confinement practices a form of torture. While our prisons today aren't identical to the Walnut Street Jail or Eastern State Penitentiary, they operate on a similar foundation. While reformers introduced isolation and contemplation in hopes of humane, compassionate punishment, in reality, prisons built with the intent to isolate don't provide incarcerated people with an opportunity to grow and change. While Foucault's Panopticon is an interesting thought experiment and provides a new way to understand the modern world, it's an unsustainable model for modern prisons. Moreover, as sentences for relatively minor crimes remain disproportionately long, Prolonged isolation from mainstream society, or even prolonged stays in solitary confinement, are a reality for too many Americans. Saquon also described the long-term feeling, even after a period of incarceration, of being locked into a space and the effect that had on him. I'm, I'm just really getting over it. This, this is six months, this month. I'm just really getting to it now. You know, really, I'm still, still actually going through it. So actually going through the transition, mm-hmm. um, it was when I moved, when I moved around, I, I, I always felt like I was in, I kept feeling like I was in a box because you got to remember in prison, everywhere you go at, you're locked in. If you go to the library, you're locked in. If you go to the gym, you're locked in. If you go to the nurse, you're locked in. Of uh, uh, That's where you're locked in a room. You're locked in every, if you go to the cafeteria, you're locked in. After everybody's in, they lock the doors. Everything is confined. So when you're out and you're not, like you move, you, you, you would sit down and think you can't go anywhere. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you think you can't go anywhere. I mean, even, although you can, your body's just so used to saying or looking or see if a CO was there or trying to, you know, a door is locked. Mm-hmm. So that was kind of um, that was kind of that was kind that was kind of um, challenging. Mm-hmm. That was kind of challenging. Marcus Lilly, a college student, community outreach coordinator for the nonprofit Coalition of Friends, mentor, public speaker, formerly incarcerated person, and self-described advocate for transformation told me about some of the places where he was incarcerated and described the dehumanizing feelings he had during incarceration. I was incarcerated in a few facilities. I was at Roxbury, um, uh, another jail in Hagerstown called the New Jail. I forgot the exact abbreviations for it. I think it's um, uh, 
never mind, I won't be able to remember. Um, ECI, Patuxent, JCI, and you know, although those facilities are different in design and makeup, and you know, uh, staff, COs, correctional officers, wardens, it's it's kind of common. It has a commonality, and for me, it's just uh, dehumanizing. Like, you know, you locked in a cell most of the day. You get recreation, um, a few hours out the day. Uh, you have hostile correctional officers. You have some cool correctional officers, but uh, in general. Um, I always wish that in an ideal, ideally, I would like for correctional officers to be like more like social workers that help facilitate your uh, rehabilitation and transition from prison into society and um, not be as uh, not have that against mentality. And, you know, it's not just correctional officers, you know. Uh, Incarcerated citizens have that mindset as well. They look at correctional officers like uh, they're the enemy and it's vice versa. But I feel like it would be more beneficial to the rehabilitation of incarcerated citizens if uh, that against mentality was destroyed and it was more like social workers working there. Um, the case managers in all jails that I've been in. Um, in, in a housing unit, you may have approximately 500 uh, incarcerated citizens in a building. And it's two case managers that's responsible for uh, those 500 incarcerated citizens' um, caseload. And oftentimes, because of the way it's set up, they don't have a... Um, the opportunity to do their job as well as they should. And that was the issue with me. I didn't like the way the case manager makeup was set up. Um, you know, uh, just dirty, like being on, I, I was on solitary confinement for a nice while. Solitary confinement always irked me because um, you have a guy or uh, a lady that's incarcerated that does something wrong and you sit them on solitary confinement for months, sometimes years, and there's no programming over there that's really geared towards helping them to change their mindset, change their perception, uh, uh, restructure their values or principles like you just have a person sitting over there kind of rotten in the same negative energy that got him over there. And for me, my experience, and, and only in my opinion, most incarcerated citizens come off lock up worse. So that's kind of like, a, I guess, a brief description of the jails that I've been in. We've covered how the modern prison state developed, but how did public perception and politics shape its growth? How can America support putting so many people behind bars? 
tune into part two of this episode as we examine how public fear, media sensationalism, and electoral politics helped mass incarceration grow.